This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Hello, Beth. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. We're going to start with that, are we? (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Wireless Books, brought to you from the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, Dunedin's private library, for just $69, including GST per year. Wander down the beautiful, checkered, linoleumed, historic, history-filled hallway between the crake and the thistle and go through those lovely glass French doors for a plethora of entertainment and information. Mm. And that's just from the librarian. You can pick some books while you're there. Okay. Let's do the f- new books first. and Lovely. And then we'll go to the big news thing. I've actually got an old Agatha Christie for Oh, how for lovely. Beef, but, um, we won't talk Now, about do you that. say Caribbean or Caribbean? I say Caribbean normally. but I, I say I, Caribbean, so that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, but I think it just depends on which side of the bed I got yes. out of, really. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Now, this is the third book in the um, Before the Coffee Gets Cold series, Before Your Memory Fades. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't bother to re- to work out how to pronounce this person because it's the Japanese translated from Japanese. Tosha Kiwa and Kawaganguchi, something like that. I've I've du- I've doubled the G's in their name. Anyway, um, this is like I say, this is the third book, and it's about a cafe where you can, if you have a special cup of coffee and sit in the right seat, you can travel back in time. Oh, that's right, mm. yeah. But of course you can only meet a person, because people want to travel back in time. Actually, you can. Tra- I think you can travel forwards as well, but you can only meet somebody who's also been to the cafe, and and you can't leave your seat. And yeah, so it's sort of quite complex rules, and it's it's the sort of thing that you have to, you, of course, you have to suspend your disbelief. But if you're prepared to do that, it was. I found it quite charming, and I read the second book in a, in a big clip because I just wanted to to know what was going to happen next. And so, I haven't started reading this one, but I assume that it's going to be equally as um, gripping. And, um, actually, I just have a quick look because the yes, the first, the second book, sorry, had a little um, diagram of all the of all the characters, and so does this one. Um, you have um, a relationship map of characters, which I think is probably very useful, especially as they've all well, of course they've all got Japanese names because they're Japanese people, but um, I always find it awkward to to differentiate between. Russian authors are really bad as well. I mean, everybody seems to start with an uh, with an N and stuff, and or an S, and I get people hopelessly muddled, which is very culturally insensitive of me. I admit that uh, book series obviously phenomenally successful to be up to book three. 
really. Yeah. yeah. Um, I and think it, it wasn't. It hasn't been out long. When when was the first book published? I think there's been. They've been out about say maybe three years, yeah, maybe, so but a book maybe a year, but less really. Years. Yeah, amazing. I mean, he is a playwright, and it started its life uh. as a play. So possibly he's used to writing very quickly, and actually, something about the writing style is reminiscent of a play. Because a lot of his character descriptions are, are sort of a bit flat. They're sort of like stage direct directions. You know how you read if you read a play. I always find if I read a play, I find the stage directions very fascinating, and they sort of have sort of brief, very quick descriptions of the characters. A, a young woman who yeah, likes, I know what you mean. and yeah. and that's the way his descriptions right. of the characters are. It's quite amusing. It, yeah, so that's just sort of carry over from his playwright days now this is the latest Karen Slaughter and it's called Girl Forgotten and it's one of those crimes where the crime happened 20 or so years ago and 1982 oh my goodness I feel so old (laughs) (laughs) and the the dim past that's what 40 years ago not even 20 years ago no no (laughs) so anyway um a young girl went out on her prom night, and um, by the end of the evening, she was dead. And the and the case goes cold, and people just forget. And then, then finally, um, somebody, Andrea Oliver, arrives in town. And she, she's an FBI agent, and she's got an, on assignment to protect a judge who's receiving death threats. But actually, that's a cover because she's actually there to find justice for Emily, who was the girl who was killed. And yeah, so I mean, this is a Karen Slaughter, and um, she's got a pretty good track record. And this is just going to fly off the shelf, so I know. In fact, the first fly off is to, <laughs> is to Beth. Her hand was out. Now, this is isn't a crime book, Beth. So I don't know if you'll be interested or not. It's called People Person, and it's by Candice Carly or Carty Williams. And I'm just going to write. Not right. I'm going to read um, the little blurb about the author because it almost gives you a bit of a flavour of, of the story she tells. She was born in South London in 1989. <laughs> the result of an affair between a Jamaican cab driver and a dyslexic Jamaican Indian receptionist. And she is a cultural writer and author of the Book of the Year award-winning Queenie. And this is actually her second um, adult fiction. And it tells the story of five half-siblings who, they, they share the same father. And he's, he's a happy-go-lucky man who, who just likes chasing women. And he has fond thoughts of his children but does very little for them. He he, is, he never pays mm. child support. He's always got a reason. Oof. And he never spends much time with them. But one day, when they're, the kids are sort of in their, teena- their teenagers, essentially, he just has this thought, I better, I better get all my kids together. And so he went, goes around and collects all. There are five children from four different mothers, so two of them are full siblings. Mm. And two of them, there's only three months between them. And yes... So he, he is a bit of a, a rat bag and he gets them all together and he he just wants them to know each other and 
his fear is that if they met each other and were attracted to each other, it could cause. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. And they and they they all rubbish this and say, well, we all look so much alike. There's no way that was going to happen. But who knows? And and they're the only the children that he actually acknowledges. There could, possibly could be others that he doesn't know of or anything. He's just that sort of casual. And he thinks of him, himself as a people person, but really he isn't. He's just. Um, just a self-centered man. Anyway, so he's introduced his children to each other, and so they become they are aware of each other, and they they sort of bump into each other because they kind of live in the same area, and they exchange telephone numbers and say, "Oh well, if we ever need any, if you ever need any help, you can come to me." Because, but they all have quite distinct personalities, um, and and it just goes on like that until suddenly. Um, an accident happens, and they need they need to one of them needs the others, and they all get together and basically help each other, even though it's a little bit illegal. And just how they forge a relationship, and how even though they didn't grow up together, they they are still family, and they form a family bond. But they're forced to spend time with their father, but. The family bond with the father never really happens. He's just mm. he's just not into it, and it's very, it's very that well written. Really lovely. Now, she was interviewed by Catherine Ryan um, about two months or so ago, and she's a very good talker. And she was she was talking about her book, and and I thought, mm, this sounds really good. So I I wrote it down, and next last time I was in the bookshop, I saw it, and I thought. Aha! That's the book they were talking about. I want it. Yes. So I think, yeah, and it's a story about modern Britain, essentially. So yeah, I I think it it should be popular. It's very it is very well written. I've I've read about the first three chapters, and I I think I when I get it back to the library, I think I might start reading the chapter four. Good. And the next one. The Lucky Last is the latest Ankles in the Vera series and it's The Rising Tide and it's book 10 in the Vera series. And now Ankles has always been popular and Vera has always been popular but I have noticed in the last 18 months or so people have got really, really keen on Vera so she's sort of moved from people who really like detective stories knowing about it to people who like watching detective stories on television really knowing about it. And this is set in um, the island of Lindisfarne. It's that um, island that actually has is a tidal island, so there's actually a causeway that on low tide you can drive along and then when the tide comes in you're cut off unless you have a boat until the tide goes back again. And there's a group of friends who who went to grammar school together a, you know, a long, long time ago and they went to a, a youth um, retreat thing in Linda's farm when they were teenagers and then they just they all bonded and decided they'd meet every five years from then on and the first time they had a reunion somebody died and it seemed like a, a tragic accident and they've they've kept meeting each other and this is sort of they're all sort of this is their I don't know how many times but they're sort of they find their latest retreat and somebody um, is found hanging, um, and it seems like a case of suicide to start with. But Vera instantly thinks not, and she starts 
digging and she makes she makes the pathologist do all these tests just and she's of course proved correct because it's Vera and she she knows these things and um, yeah so it's all on and yeah this is just it's a Vera book and um, I don't there are some books that people bring them back and they're on the shelves and 20 minutes later somebody else comes in and it goes out again they they just are never on the shelf they they don't last a day essentially and that's going to be one of them and I think possibly yes she's she's going I for I remember it. the last um Vera book um her latest one and I think it was last Yes. Yeah, and it was great about the baby. Can't mm. remember the name of it, but it was about uh, the sleeping. It was about you know she found the baby mm, yes. in the car seat on her own. But the inter and of course you know I love the Vera series. But the interesting thing about that is that the Vera series is different. Mm. Um, screenwriters, they're not all based on. Yeah. Anne Cleves hasn't written them all, and they're just so good. And but. I think it's so good. I think um, that Anglees probably would have an oversight yeah, on it. But it's because Brenda Blethyn, mm. you know, she is Vera. Even, and I try not to, but even when I read all the Vera books, even the other detective Anglees books, <laughs> I still sort of think of her because um, she's just so charming. That yeah. And in fact, um, Anglees, I think, is very um, hard on the way she describes the yes, character Vera yeah. in the book. Like she's got, she, it is not an attractive description in any way in her books. Yeah. I think, God, that's a bit rough, you know. I mean, but it's how other people yes. see Vera. But of course, you know, Brenda Blethyn, and she's so attractive and mm. her wonderful funky style that she puts um, in things. But I keep thinking when I read about Vera, how, and I'm sure Anne Cleves is using more grotesque descriptions of her <laughs> in each new book. And I sort of cringe and I'm like, oh, no, she doesn't. She's not like that really? at all. I think hopefully this time when she describes her legs in the most disgusting way she does, she hasn't added ulcers to them because that would I'd have to have a stiff email sent off to Anne Cleves. She's a wonderful writer. She really is. I could reread mm. all of her yes. books because she just writes in oh, just that understated, chatty style. It, everything is really fast paced. It's a page turner, and the, her style of writing is brilliant. But it just seems like it's so easy, mm. and because it's so conversational, and it, like I say, it goes at a cracking pace. It, it's it's just so good, and her descriptions of everyone and everything, you know, even the birds, going back to Vera's father and the taxidermy and all um, of, you know, going through the, the forest and everything. The descriptions are just like being there. Just, they're mm. just so alive. Oh, she's just, you know, she is brilliant. Absolutely it, brilliant. It takes hard work to write something yeah. that seems easy. Easy. Yeah. Oh, I know. I think we need to go for a sting now. Oh, bear with. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. 
That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M dot org dot NZ. Now, at the start of the introduction of this show, I am always gushing about the plethora of pleasure when one walks through the doors of our library. And, of course, there are dozens, dozens of books, biographies on all sorts of royal personages and um, states and I'm sure that a lot of these books that you've got in the library, Christine, will start to get a resurgence of popularity since the death of Her Majesty because, of course, we want to know. We want to know the history of these duchies and or dukies, whatever they're called. And, duchies. Yeah. Mm. You know, so... Well, I don't know if that's going to to be the case there's probably going to be a lot of new books out I mean there's always lots of books about there's been a lot of books written about the Queen and there will be more but what fascinated me was watching the funeral and seeing and seeing it because I have read descriptions of state funerals before um, I've read about the sailors the, the stamp of their feet as they pulled the gun carriage. But actually to see it and to, and to hear it, it uh, was amazing. It was quite hypnotic and mm. they're, they're doing it to a, a pace and there's the drummer keeping the pace and everybody's going at that bump, bump, bump pace. And although it's it should be boring as heck, I just found myself mesmerised. I couldn't stop it watching is, it. You're right, hypnotic, mesmerising. And the pageantry, and oh. sometimes the camera angles—they showed you how in sync um, the the people marching were, and it was just astonishing. Now, so that actually made me think about what a state funeral is, because last year we saw Prince Philip's funeral, and that wasn't a state funeral; that was a ceremonial mm. funeral. And state funerals are basically for monarchs and for great statesmen that the nation wants to um, honour. And the last person who had a state funeral before the Queen was Winston Churchill. And I was about six when he died, and I remember, must have seen it on television, because after the funeral they put his coffin on a barge and barged him back to wherever he was going to be buried, which I've always remembered that. But I've gone on and had a look to see about the history of state funerals and originally all the mourners would um, be had dark black coat cloaks and and how much um, yardage your cloak had depended on your social status ah. and so they had they had a breakdown of state funerals and they started with um, Elizabeth they, I know that Henry VIII and all that had state funerals but they started off with Elizabeth the first and she had her state funeral at um, at the Abbey where the Queen had hers and all the monarchs until George the second had their their fu- their state funeral at the Abbey and then and Except for George the First, who actually died in Hanover, and I don't think he—I think his body just stayed in Hanover and is buried there, so mm. he didn't have a, a funeral in in England, and nobody really cared about him anyway. Uh-huh. But then afterwards, um, so George the Second was the last person to have the state funeral, and then his grandson inherited, and so he was 
king for 60 years, which is a long break. And so in the meantime, they state funerals then started happening at Windsor. And so all the state funerals from then on were at Windsor up until the Queen. And so and so there's a long period with George the Third and then they had to sort of make up a state funeral again for for George the Fourth. And then when Queen Victoria died, of course it had been so long since the last mm. state funeral, they they she actually created the state funeral as we know it today. Like the thing about the soldiers pulling the gun carriage. The for sailors. Sorry, the sailors. The ratings. Yes, the naval ratings. That's that actually the gun carriage thing, she started it because she wanted to be buried as a soldier's daughter because her father, the Duke of Kent, who died when she was a young child and she never really knew, had been a soldier. So she had a very romantic notion about her father, of course, and she wanted to honour him. So that's why she what, that's why they're on gun, gun carriages. Mm. So she started that. And she died in Osborne in the Isle of Wight. So the Navy had the task of bringing her body back and transporting it to Windsor. And she she said that she didn't want a lying in state, which had always been a thing. And they had, they actually had sort of wax effigies on top of the the coffin because oh. it was be taken through the streets oh. but she didn't want a lying in state so her body was to go from Osborne taken by naval ship and then and then on the gun, gun carriage it was to be um, towed by horses but um, the horses bolted and mm. something got um, loose on on the hitchings or whatever and the horses bolted and it was an, an embarrassment to the Navy and so they said well the naval ratings will, will We'll, we'll, we'll pull the, the so they pulled it through the streets of London and of course it is such an amazing thing and so when her, his, her son died basically 10 years later people still had that memory so that's been, been a thing in state funerals ever since it was amazing to watch mm. it was, I've never seen that, oh, well, of course I haven't seen that but no. when I heard that naval ratings will be you know pulling the gun carriage you know because horses are bolt and all that I was thinking oh god that's a bit tough but yeah seeing it done yeah. in the formation and how the ratings all moved to the side to let the coffin in and then coming back and but what an honour for them yeah. what an honour you would you know you can imagine them thinking I'll be telling my grandchildren about this, well, you would. this day Wouldn't how you? I was involved they, so closely they'll, they'll probably get a special medal mm. or something like that mm. for having been part of yeah. it so when when Edward her son died 10 years later he reinstated the the viewing of, of the coffin oh, yeah. and so people got to, to do that and then when George his son George the fifth died they then brought in the um, the sons standing in um, Vigil of the Princes. Yes, the Vigil mm. of the Princes, and then I don't. I think they must have done it for George the the sixth, probably his his brothers and um, their sons or something like that. And the Queen, of course, had a, a double doses. She had her her children and her grandchildren, and it was very it was moving. It was very it moving. Was really, just I can't think of. A, Good description. I'm sorry, oh, but it was just so beautiful. I was mesmerised by it, but it just brought this mental image into my mind, which I, I, 
can't help but think it's sort of true. I could just picture the Queen and Prince Philip on quiet nights, alone together at Buckingham Palace, sitting in front of of a fire, or possibly a gas heater, um, <laughs> and, and Philip looks up and says, when I die, I'm going to have a converted Jeep and it's going to carry my body. And then Elizabeth says, well, when I die, I'm going to have the naval ratings and they're going to do this. And they're both going, well, then then I'm going to have this happen. And she says, well, then I'm going to have my little pony greet me. Oh, it was so beautiful. And I just think I could just picture them get sitting together trying to up one each other. But yeah, that's. I think it's just kind of a sweet thing. It was weird, but it was a sweet funeral. Yeah, I, and I loved the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral for its simplicity, and of course it was during COVID, um, so it was you know very few people. But um, the on the forecourt of Balmoral, no Windsor, Windsor. sorry, um, you know there was the naval band and mm. the army band and all that wonderful old music. Which and he he was all him. Yeah, That's what yeah, he chose. Yeah, and of course his children walking behind them and just and we we want the royals. We want to be able to empathise with the royals. You know that they can show their feelings of grief, and they did. And it really, oh, I don't know. It's just silly, I know, but it's really made you think. Oh, they, you know, the poor family. You know, well, that's how we think about everyone who mm. loses. But it was just an absolute spectacle and wonderful. And you can't reach articles because waxing no. lyrical over the spectacular no. once in a lifetime site. Mm. Yes, exactly. Well, I just um, I just brought something in to remind myself that when the Queen became Queen, you couldn't make programs about her. You couldn't make programs about a living monarch. How times have changed. Oh, and on that note, everyone, happy reading. Oh, happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.